The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 16th, 2019. On this week's show, Matt Brown of SB Nation will join us to talk about California's Fair Pay to Play Act, the bill that could at last allow college athletes profit off of their names, images, and likenesses. Joe Drape of the New York Times will also be here to discuss the hushing up of a positive drug test for last year's Triple Crown winning horse, Justify. And finally, former NFL offensive lineman Ryan O'Callaghan will be here for a conversation about his new memoir, My Life on the Line, which he explains what it was like to play in the NFL while in the closet. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. It's a tough day for us here yeah. the studio. Especially for me. Some of uh, our older NFL players going through a rough time. As of the time we're recording this, Ben Roethlisberger out for the year with an elbow. No feel for that guy. Drew Brees, potential uh, thumb surgery in his future. Adam Vinatieri. At the time we're recording this, we do not know Vinatieri's fate, but he just missed two extra points. He talked ominously about making an announcement. He could be done, though. He could. 46 years old. Some would say that he had a long and productive NFL career, Hall of Fame career. I would just choose to focus on his late career struggles and say that that's how we should remember him. No, stop that. <laughs> Blasphemy. He's been in the NFL since 1995. Wow. You're idle. So everybody be gentle. Stefan, it's a rough day for him. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last week, the California state legislature unanimously passed a bill, the Fair Pay to Play Act, that would allow NCAA athletes to get some cash in their pockets. The bill, which is awaiting Governor Gavin Newsom's signature, he has 30 days to sign it. It would not let schools give athletes money directly, but it would allow athletes to be compensated by outside entities for their use of their names, images, and likenesses. Bernie Sanders and LeBron James, a classic duo, have come out in favor of the bill. LeBron said it would allow college athletes to responsibly get paid for what they do and the billions they create. The NCAA, for its part, has called the legislation unconstitutional and harmful and said it would erase the critical distinction between college and professional athletics. Joining us now is Matt Brown of SB Nation. He wrote about the Fair Pay to Play Act in his newsletter last week. That newsletter is called Extra Points. It's great. You should subscribe. Matt, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. 
Let's start, Matt, by explaining what this bill would allow college athletes to do. Um, this will also serve as a brief summary of what the NCAA currently does not allow them to do. So, for instance, get their own shoe deals, get compensated for their likenesses being used in video games, coach at basketball camps or lacrosse camps or swimming camps during the offseason for pay. Is that basically the right idea? Yeah, essentially the right idea. The The current status quo right now is that uh, an athlete can't get money for anything, uh, even something very trivial, you know, someone giving them $200 to go help pay for dinner outside of some very specific circumstances. They're not, they're not able to get that. They have a, a myriad restrictions on whether, where they can play. And uh, th- this bill allows student athletes potentially with a few restrictions then to be able to get uh, compensated um, by outside entities. There's, I think it's an important distinction. The school itself is not cutting the check. This would be for outside interested parties, whether that is a shoe company or a video game company, or perhaps something substantially more local, like, you know, Bob's Ford dealership in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Right. And that's the great misinterpretation here. You know, on the on the opposite side of this argument are the sky is falling people who say that, oh, this is going to lead to bankrupting universities. And what are you going to do when you have to pay everybody? And what's the golf player going to get when the football player is getting? But this is merely the next step and a really small step in my estimation toward the acknowledgement of some free market based principles for college athletes. Yeah, I just don't have a whole lot of patience for a lot of the sky is falling crowd. The, the feedback that I hear a lot from college sports fans is, oh my gosh, if this happens, only the wealthy and powerful programs are going to be able to find people to cut checks for their athletes, right? Like there's there's unlikely to be a car dealership uh, next to you know Northern Illinois that's going to go pay a, a linebacker a hundred grand, but surely that might happen at Alabama and Auburn. And you know, to that I think, well, I mean, maybe. But it's not like this college athletics is a sport with a history of parity <laughs> anyway. Like the the Auburns, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, they're getting the best recruits, whether we're paying people above the board or not. All this does is, is potentially take a little bit of the underground economy and bring it above board. Yeah, and what sports economists or non-sports economists will tell you is that actually injecting more money would increase parity, that – for instance, like the Yankees before free agency actually won the World Series more often than they did, um, you know, afterwards. And the thing that I found so interesting about this um, in California is in a time, Matt, when our country is riven by partisanship, this was a 72 to zero vote. You have like free market people and civil rights people coming together. And, you know, the, the thing that I often find is that when people who don't follow college sports, all you have to do to radicalize them is tell them about what the rules are that are currently on the books. And they're like, wow, that is insane. We can't stand for that. And that seems like what has happened in California. Which leads me to wonder, like, who are the people that continue to sort of adamantly defend the NCAA's monopolistic and you know cartel um, approach to college athletics when college you sort sports of, fans right but when you tell them you know it's like the, the again the, these are in their real lives they're either like free market defenders or they are civil rights activists like you just pointed out and yet the myopia that develops around college sports is really staggering in its uh, in, in its in its strength. You're completely right. It's it's very interesting to me that I feel like attitudes about this have changed very quickly over the last decade. You know, I, I think if you had asked sports writers 
uh, or a lot of college sports fans in the late 80s uh, and you compare them to you know what people are thinking now that there'd be a huge change and now you're right not only is it really bipartisan in California you have a relatively conservative uh, US representative from North Carolina who has been proposing some of these reforms and we have state houses in Colorado in Washington most recently in South Carolina that have brought some level the the, the exact law proposed bills have, have differed from California a little bit but challenging this current status quo and it's not just from progressive democrats it's it's from conservative republicans i i am as well i imagine that if you're able to you know, get into deep into sec country and convince people that this would help their programs um you're going to find people making all kinds of philosophical changes we joked about this at northwestern when, when some players were contemplating unionization like this might be the thing that ends right to work in the south right if, if people realize that this might help their football teams you know that might that might change some uh, some opinions in the state houses what historically has happened with these sorts of issues is that the NCAA puts up this tremendous fight. It's going to destroy college sports. No one's going to have any money. We're going to have to cut schools. And we've already seen athletic cut sports. We've already seen athletic directors say that in the last week. Um, and then there is this period of negotiation and compromise where the NCAA gives a little bit. So incrementally, you know, in the past, it's been more food allowances for athletes after Shabazz Napier said that he went to bed hungry. And then it was these stipends for, for playing. Um, and now we've got, you know, in, in this case, we've got the NCAA, Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, really sort of exercising this terrifically convoluted logic to justify not giving athletes the rights to their names, image, or likenesses. But I think the California um, bill and the legislator, Nancy Skinner, who wrote it, are actually pretty smart here. They're, they're delaying implementation until 2023, which gives time either for legal challenges or more logically for college sports to come around and be able to sort of slow walk the change. I think that's that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, right now there's already an NCAA working group of athletic directors and university presidents, and you know, folks associated with the sport on you know not just the Division One level, but all the way down to Division Three, who are studying reforms to likeness policy. And uh, I believe that they're supposed to make an update in October. And you're, you're right, what, th what this does, and I think it's it's very important. This is happening in California, right? Because the, the NCAA has has come out and said, listen, this is yeah. going to uh, potentially impact their ability to participate in NCAA tournaments here. We might have to kick some of you, some of the schools out. And maybe if it was Delaware or Vermont or some smaller state that doesn't have that, that clout that proposes, maybe the NCAA would have been able to strong arm them, you know, like which they've been able to do historically. But California has so many schools, so many schools with enormous brands that if you tried to kick all of them out, um, I would imagine CBS, who has the billion dollar, you know, broadcasting contract with the NCAA basketball tournament or Capital One or some of these brands are, are gonna have some follow-up questions. And when you mess with the money, um, that really forces the NCAA to make some changes here. So we have we have a couple of a couple of years where I, I would imagine that there might be some additional tweaks to, to this law and to other laws that might come up here. But I would be blown away if by 2023 we don't, if not much earlier, we don't have a system that will allow football and basketball players and others to be able to have some semblance of, of uh, likeness rights. There's some similarity here to the fight over vehicle emissions standards and California kind of setting policy for the nation, getting out in front of the issue and kind of forcing the issue. And you've seen with the vehicle emissions standards that federal agencies are trying to, you know, strip California of its right to set a standard, like the Department of Justice might get involved. Do we have a sense, Matt, 
of whether the NCA is going to try or will be able to uh, say that, like, yeah, California, like, you don't actually have the right to set policy for anyone or anything and, and just try to get this taken off the books if Newsom signs it. I'm sure they're going to try. I mean, I, I, my understanding is that the NCAA is, has floated this argument that the California uh, bill might, in fact, be unconstitutional. And, you know, I, I think to, to what degree the interstate commerce clause comes into effect here, I think, is outside of my pay grade as a jokey sports blogger. But I'm like one of the three that's not an attorney. Um, but but uh, many of the economists who were involved with, with writing the California bill said, like, this is ridiculous. I think there's a story up right now at the American Prospect that kind of criticizes that constitutional argument. So certainly they're going to try. Uh, I don't think that that's especially likely. And to the extent that, that the NCAA can be successful in getting tweaks to this legislation, I think will depend on what additional pressure from other state houses they get. You know, if if a big population center state like a Texas or a Florida or maybe somebody in the Midwest advances something very similar, I don't really see a way that the NCAA can just kind of put, you know, put their fingers in their ears and pretend like it's not happening. The NCAA isn't stupid either. I mean, they've been embroiled in antitrust cases. They've been embroiled in the O'Bannon case. I mean, the more likely outcome here is that the lawyers at the NCAA craft logical solutions that get some sort of control over the way that athletes yeah. use their name, image, and likeness. In your newsletter, you quote a law firm, you quote a, a sports economist. You know, there are ways to do this, right? Make sure that the money you get from any sort of um, uh, likeness rights, it goes into a fund or there, there's some connection to education. Um, there are ways for to sort of you know, to, to, to reach some sort of compromise here so that the athletes do get compensated, but the NCA can retain for now its imprimatur of amateurism and, and equality. And the sausage making process here is what's really going to be fascinating to me, because I, I think a lot of really credible people have advanced this argument that likeness rights are a civil rights issue. You know, it, every other student on campus is able to monetize those rights. And so virtually any abridgment of those rights um, is, is would still be a civil rights violation. You know, tell, telling somebody that you can only sell your likeness rights to the car dealership and then not get paid until unless you graduate especially if you're trying to pursue a professional football career where you might not graduate anyway, maybe that's not fair. Trying to cap the amount of money that you might that you might get that if it's a civil rights violation, that's not fair either. I have a suspicion that many of the lawmakers or people who are involved in actually crafting this policy might not be so ideological in their approach to making these changes here. But I, I, I imagine that any kind of compromise is still going to be criticized by, I think, a lot of people. You, you still have – it might be a generational thing, but a lot of people who don't want to see any changes at all. And uh, some folks who I think are going to see any kind of abridgment as, as being a, a concern. I imagine you're, you're going to see something where the NCAA can, can walk away saying, like, this is still tethered to education. So right. it's actually OK. Um, I don't know if that's going to be where the, the this, this issue finally rests. Right. I think that they're going to try to do that, whether they succeed yeah. or not. Open question. Yeah. I mean, Matt, you said in your post that you don't view that you're not as hard line on this issue as maybe some people are, um, where, you know, if the compromise that comes out here is, all right, let's tether this to education in some way. Let's cap the amount that college athletes can receive. Let's restrict it in some way. I think you would put yourself in the category of like, all right, that's better than the current system. That's better 
the nothing. But there are a lot of people, and I think maybe I would put myself more in the hardline category that's like compromise never. (laughs) (laughs) That would be uh, better than we are today, but would still constitute like an absurd abridgment of uh, civil rights, to use your own terminology against you. And I'm not settling for that, man. Especially when when you look long term, it is inevitable that college athletes are going to get paid. And this is all a gradual, slow walk toward compensation. And I think real compensation, whether it's in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, college athletes are going to get paid for their value and their contribution. Well, then maybe it's a strategy question, Matt, is like, is a compromise position actually delaying the inevitable, and and we should just push to get get it out of the way all in one shot. You know, I think some of that might depend on what a kind of additional leverage can be placed upon the NCAA here in the next two years. You know, if if uh, if, if South Carolina, if, if that if that proposed bill, uh, and and that one's interesting, I think, because that would actually give schools the ability to cut some checks. You know, granted, not massive ones, but additional stipends. If other states are following them, and you're able to really kind of push us in a position of strength, then by all means, you know, go and get the absolute best deal you possibly can. If you're going alone or or mostly alone, then it is a strategy question and. And maybe that kind of you know, goes into how you feel about the best way to, to, uh, to go after progress generally. Um, do, do, you, do you prefer an incrementalist approach or do you try to get the, 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 the single biggest thing you possibly can? I certainly in, I, I sympathize intellectually uh, with the argument that we should have no restrictions. And that I, I would probably have some significant changes to what the NCAA is as an organization. Maybe that's fine. Um, I, I maybe, maybe I'm just a little bit more skeptical. Having studied the history of this organization, the history of the sport here for a little while, there's not a ton of examples where there's been really rapid change very quickly. They typically have to just drag their feet on everything. And I, uh, we'll, we'll see how, how quickly they're able to get the, get those feet dragged. So let's actually think about some hypotheticals of how this might work. And we talked about how a lot of the objections here are absurd and just counterfactual. But let's say um, there is a little bit of a free-for-all and, uh, you know, a player at LSU, uh, you know, gets $500,000 for some no-show job that's like actually a fake endorsement. He sounds like one autograph for a rich person. It's considered an autograph signing. Um, and this like proliferates all around the whole country. Like that, I think, is a thing that a lot of people would object to, say that it's a farce, that it's becoming more like professional sports. Like what do we say to that and what do, what do we think about it? I mean, I, I personally have no problem with that at all, but I'm like willing to acknowledge and admit that other people would. And, and and to add to that, the New York Times did a piece about this before the bill was finally passed. And it, you know, added that sort of speculative graph, like, what if a quarterback reaches a marketing agreement with a casino or a marijuana dispensary? Um, so, you know, some concern trolling, some concern trolling, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I could see the idea of trying to limit potential sponsorship groups away from maybe controversial companies like a strip club or a marijuana, dis- you know, the dispensary or something. But you know, those are generally things that are collectively bargained. Right. And it, 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 athletes don't have that ability right, right. now. And 
So if you're going to restrict that, ideally you're, you're giving them something here in return. My, my, my question, my follow-up questions, if someone's complaining about this, would be one, I want them to articulate exactly like, why does that bother you? You know, did the fact that there's a left tackle at LSU making $200,000, well, clearly his, his, his value is that. Do, do you think, it, how, how specifically does that compromise the sport? The other thing is these things are, have been going on for almost 100 years. You know, this is the 150th anniversary of college football, and you can go back about 140 years, and you can find – you know, people at Princeton and Yale and at Chicago get it. You know, there there were bag men. These these interactions are still happening now, rather than having it. You know, put out on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It's there. There these discussions are happening in message boards and on Twitter, but they're they're still happening, and the bags are still being dropped, and we're still able to enjoy the sport. So, if someone is saying that my ability to enjoy college football depends on me not knowing about that money, even though that money is still being exchanged, like I would want to interrogate that a little bit more. Like, I don't think that changes the power dynamic or what makes the sport particularly interesting. Yeah, and I think that in addition to all of these hypotheticals, we also need to focus on, for instance, the UCF kicker who was ruled ineligible because he had a YouTube channel and yeah. was like selling ads, you know, monetizing videos on the YouTube channel. So I guess it's a question of like, do you fear something that could potentially happen in the future where like the negative outcome is, players get money or are you you know offended by the fact that you know nobody in any realm of college sports whether in big time sports whether they're famous or not can you know do anything as a compared to other students like you can't teach a swim lesson if you're a swimmer like what what are what offends you more yeah and it's honestly it's that that second thing i feel like we don't talk about quite as much in this conversation. Now, certainly the, the star basketball player or the elite wide receiver is going to be a, a big beneficiary of this. And that's great because they're, they're, the value of their labor is important. But, you know, a group that I, I, think, I don't think we talk about as much are especially women athletes or people who are participating in Olympic sports um, that I think – have greater marketability and value for their likeness rights than maybe we might think. You know, there's there's a a decent chunk of people who I think are really good women's basketball players, um, who um, especially in college markets that aren't in major metropolitan areas, would be able to get non-trivial amount of money for for cutting some of these deals. Certainly, uh, you know, you know, pe- people who are who are popular and successful in Olympic sports could at the very least, you know, charge some money to go to parties to be, you know, Instagram influencers or you know some of these things. Here on campus. I mean, the, the idea of anybody who is not getting any money getting even just a little bit of money um, away from the spotlight. I think that's that's a big positive here. And if, if for there's a lot of concern trolling about like the status of like swimming or golf or some of these other sports in the event of players getting actual money. I, I think if you think about it that way, like oh, actually this is still good for those athletes too. Matt Brown is at SB Nation. His newsletter is called Extra Points. We'll put a link to it on our show page. Matt, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Last week, the New York Times published a story with a rather self-explanatory headline, Justify Failed a Drug Test Before Winning the Triple Crown. In that story, Joe Drape wrote that the horse should not have run in the 2018 Kentucky Derby if the sports rules were followed. The rules weren't followed, though, and Justify, which tested positive for the performance-enhancing drug or the possibly performance-enhancing drug, scopolamine, was allowed to run, became the sport's 13th Triple Crown winner, and had its breeding rights sold for tens of millions of dollars. Joining us now to discuss is Joe Drape. Welcome back to the podcast, Joe. Thanks for having me, guys. Let's step through the facts of the case, Joe. Justify tested positive for scopolamine after winning the Santa Anita Derby in April 2018. What is scopolamine and what do we know about its ability to enhance performance in a horse? Scopolamine is a drug that can act as a bronchodilator, which means it clears up your lungs, it increases the rate of your heartbeat, and it makes you far more efficient in case you're after that. It's also a plant-based poison that can be found in jimson weed, which sometimes gets mixed up in hay and uh, feed. But, you know, that rarely happens. And horses or humans don't go looking for jimson weed because it smells terrible and it tastes worse. Yeah, you actually quoted someone in your story saying that I think it has to come from intentional intervention, not from this accidental ingestion of jimson weed. Yeah, well, I got Rick Sams who ran the drug testing lab in Kentucky for seven years. And he said at the rate it was found, which was basically 300 uh, nanograms per milliliter, that that was really high, almost toxic. And it suggested to him that somebody did administer it for the edge, for the performance enhancing edge. All right. So the body here that fielded the positive test was the California Horse Racing Board. This was a race, the Santa Anita Derby in California. So based on the protocols, what should have happened when this horse tested positive and what actually did happen? Well, when he justified tested positive, they should have immediately started an investigation because this one just a run-of-the-mill positive. This was the Derby favorite, trained by the most famous horse racing trainer, in America, if not the world. And really importantly, he needed to win or finish second in that race to qualify for the Derby. Five or six years ago, they switched to a qualifying system where you got points for winning big races. Justify was a late starter. No horse had ever won the Derby without starting as a two-year-old since 1882. He hadn't run. He'd only run two times before Santa Anita. So that was sort of the crux of it. He had to win to get his ticket punched to Kentucky. The racing board waited like three weeks to notify Bob Baffert that that Justify had tested positive. And at this point, it was less than 10 days before the Kentucky Derby. Baffert gets that notification and yet keeps the horse entered in the race. Reading your stories... It strikes me that if you're Bob Baffert and the owners of Justify, you have to look at this and be concerned that this is going to go public at some point. Wouldn't the prudent decision and the, the safest course of action, both from a public relations and a potential legal standpoint, have been for them to withdraw this horse from the race? Well, absolutely. It's a, the cliche is true. The cover-up's always worse than the crime. They could have cleared this up. They've cleared up 
drug cases similar to this in the past within 30 days. No doubt they slow walked it. Uh, they dragged their feet. He had a right to get a second drug test, which he did, but that didn't come back until after he won the Derby. That is May 8th. Uh, May 8th, the executive director of the California Horse Racing Board says, we're going to file a complaint and hold a hearing. And then it disappears. And that's sort of to your question of tell me about this board. This board is made up of people who own horses as well. In fact, the chairman of the board was a guy named Chuck Winter, and he employed Baffert as a trainer. So you had all these entanglements between the members who sit on the board who, you know, quite frequently employ trainers and jockeys that they're there to regulate. In this case, you had Chuck Winter, who was the, the, the head of it, and he is a friend and a, uh, I guess, owner-employee relationship with Bafford. So, you know, th that makes it even look worse than it happened. So, you know, it disappears May 8th, and then all of a sudden, in an executive board session in August, August 23rd, they vote unanimously just to say this didn't happen. And, you know, that's how it came out. Somebody dropped me the documents that showed this chain of custody and how this was handled. And, you know, Rick Baedeker, who is the executive director of that board, said in his five and a half years, they had never handled anything like this in an executive session. So, yeah, if you read your stories and some of the coverage that it's kicked up, Joe, I don't think anybody, no matter what you believe about whether this drug was administered intentionally or unintentionally, I think we can all agree that the process here was really weird and wasn't transparent. Um, and then otherwise, I think we're kind of in a choose your own adventure story. Stefan, you mentioned, wouldn't the prudent thing have been to withdraw the horse from the K Kentucky Derby? Well, no, if in fact, this was an accidental dosing, if it was contamination, Baffert and the owners of Justify had the right to get another um, sample taken, another test done. And the results of that didn't come in until after the Derby. Now the question is, once that second test comes back positive after the derby is there now so much momentum around this horse in horse world like we have a derby winner we're going for the triple crown where at that point it's just nobody is incentivized to be like yeah this horse might have been given this drug intentionally and illegally we should really you know check on this except nobody's incentivized except that you know that if this gets public that the fallout is going to be so dramatic that it will be just another black mark on the eye of the horse racing business. I mean, there's no upside for arguing after the fact, after Justify wins the Derby, after Justify wins the Triple Crown, that, oh, this was a mistake, don't believe What do you mean there's the... no upside? They sold the breeding rights for $60 million. Well, I mean, there's no public upside, and look where we are now. I mean, this horse and Baffert's... Baffert's reputation feels like it is potentially ruined, except for the fact ruined. that, Come except on. for the fact that this is such a closed, small world that, and that, right, Joe, drug administration, <laughs> use of performance-enhancing drugs has been going on for decades. Absolutely, Stefan. And this is a sport that's already circling the bowl right now. Uh, animal rights activists have it in its sights. You had those thirty horses die out there in Santa Anita. 
They're taking on all kinds of other sports, all kinds of other entertainment options. They have a terrible reputation for not a fair play and level playing field. So, you know, you have all those factors weighing in on them. And you're right. Everybody, nobody's denying that he tested positive and it should have been addressed sooner. Now, was he trying to get an edge or not? What I find curious is Bafford, who will talk to a ham sandwich, never talked to me on the way up. I've known the guy for 30 years. Since this thing is broken, nobody's really come out with evidence that said, okay, this many horses were tested and they found this. All they have said is that there may have been a handful of others, that they retested some things, and only the Bafford horse tested positive, but there were some indicators that it could be contaminated. Uh, you know, I, this is just a bad time and a bad look to be less than credible. And this stuff gets out. People do feel aggrieved and they do want to have the complete truth out there. And so they come to somebody like us. So it's unfortunate for a gazillion reasons, but it really does give a indelible black eye, to not only the sport, but there's only 13 triple crown winners in history. Now they've got it to where it's like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. So everybody can argue about do they deserve to be in the hall or not? Well, there's just a long, long history in the U.S. and in other countries of covering up positive drug tests. Um, you know, so it's not in horses and humans. It's certainly not unusual or surprising or atypical for something like this to happen and, and not unique to horse racing. Let's mention Baffert's lawyer's defense after your story, first story came out, Joe, uh, W. Craig Robertson third said that Justify's positive test had been the result of environmental contamination, commended the California Horse Racing Board's handling of the case. You said that Baffert never reached out to you. You're, are you totally convinced that the environmental contamination thing is bunk? You know, I can't speculate. I'm reporting on this, but they've had more than ample opportunity to provide uh, whatever, which now they're claiming was a four-month investigation, some evidence of something, and they are not doing that. What they have said is because there is no complaint filed, the statutes say they can't comment. And, you know, if that's the case, I guess it's unfortunate. Now, you know, again, let's not argue. We can trot out experts. My expert says it was put there intentionally. There's they really actually haven't produced an expert, but they say it's not. But, you know, we wouldn't even be having that conversation if they would have followed their rules, called foul when it was foul, come out and said, look, this has happened. We're investigating. We're going to pick up the pace here. Uh, you know, it seems to me that you'd either want to clear, clear or convict somebody in a timely manner with this much at stake. Reputations, the Kentucky Derby, the Triple Crown, it just seems the California Horse Racing Board should have been acting a little more urgently and a little more transparently. It also seems like the California Horse Racing Board's actions have now opened a gigantic 
can of worms justifies owners. Again, a can of votes. Can of votes. There are lawsuits being contemplated by other horse owners, including the runner-up in the Santa Anita Derby, where Justify tested positive. Um, Mick Ruiz is the owner of, of, of the horse that finished second there, and he said the rule was there. It's just real disappointing how we have different sets of rules for different people there in Santa Anita. The horse tested positive. Why didn't anybody know about it until now? And beyond that, you know, Josh, you said $60 million for Justify's breeding rights. I mean, I'd be wondering what Justify is shooting. You know, maybe they're not so great. Maybe this is a horse that is not going to be, you know, siring other Triple Crown winners. And that's certainly part of the, you know, risk they're running here. The cynical view of the game, which people share and, you know, they've kind of earned it, is that this is an industry where fast bucks and swift deals and winks and a nods happen, quite frankly. You know, the fact is nobody's going to know if Justify is a good stallion for another four years because that's when they hit the ground. He's getting 150000 a pop right now. That may go down. We're no little bit more next year if yeah. they just lower the price a little bit if people are pushing back on it. It's just the erosion of credibility of an already troubled sport that just makes this a serious misstep. You said in one of your later pieces that if Justify, if it had been accidental, still the process, you know, the opacity of it and the appearance of potential impropriety has cost Justify an unquestioned legacy. And that seems true, again, no matter what you think, just the the board and its actions have really made it such that this horse, the 13th Triple Crown winner, will always be seen as suspicious. Well, yeah, there's going to be an asterisk next to his name. I mean, you go look at Wikipedia right now, and, and they've already added it there. Uh, they've opened themselves up, too. I mean, I can't imagine. I understand the governor of California is looking at the horse racing board and thinking of a new way to configure it. Uh, you know, it's not a good look to have the fox guard in the hen house, and that's what they have going right there. And, you know, honestly, if that horse, if everybody was innocent, they did a disservice to Bob Baffert and justifying his owners because they are the ones who've cast the aspersions on this. And Baffert was found in 2013. There was a previous board action. He was criticized for giving horses, all horses, ones that didn't need it, um, a thyroid hormone, um, and seven horses died in his care. Um, You know, Stefan, you had mentioned this will be a stain or a black mark on Baffert. All of that happened, and, you know, it's not like we were talking about it on this podcast, or I think people outside of the horse game really know about it. And so I think given his stature, given the history, it would be totally... I think there's a 0% chance that this will, you know, drum Baffert out of the game if that earlier incident uh, didn't. Does that seem right to you, Joe? I think you're right, Josh. I mean, I think uh, this is an insular world. You want to win. There's a lot of money at stake. They've looked the other way. And, you know, with the incident you mentioned, his seven horses dropped dead suddenly in his care over a 16-month period. They did a long investigation uh, said they didn't, he didn't do anything wrong, but said something's wrong. They basically just didn't assign blame to him. He's had incidents in the past. Uh, a lot of trainers have, you know, in my original piece, I, I 
point out that, you know, they've used off-brand drugs for decades. I mean, they've used Viagra, frog venom, cobra venom, all to get them to run faster. In the milieu, in the environment, it's sort of like if you go to a casino, you probably deserve to lose money. And that's what horse racing has become right now. To be clear, none of the stuff that you mentioned was, I think, specifically attributed no, to, to No, Africa. not on this, not on this, but and, you know. And also in that 2013 investigation, it was found that um, he hadn't violated any rules or regulations of the California boards. Right, and, I think, and maybe that's somewhere to, to wrap this up, Joe. Bill Finley in the Thoroughbred Daily News says that, you know, the, the general media, and I would include us here as not being, you know, Josh and me as not being horse racing experts, will look at this and say, this is a stain. This is a problem. Finley says it's complicated. The likely conclusion, he writes, is that the horse wasn't intentionally drugged. There are questions about whether scopolamine is is harmful or is even a, a, a performance enhancer and that the picture this creates might not be fair to horse racing. Are you sympathetic at all to that conclusion, Joe? I, you know, I'm really not. And it's I've seen this circle wagon mentality for years. And if it's not performance enhancing, why is it banned? Why is there a rule that says if you're caught using it, you get disqualified and you give the money back. I mean, it's on their books. Uh, you know, it's there. Nobody's denying it was there. Nobody's denying the rule was he was supposed to be disqualified and the money returned and that wouldn't have got him in the derby. So, you know, I, I've watched these sort of mental gymnastics go on over the years. And honestly, you and I and Josh, we're in the mainstream media and they use it just like people use it in politics. I mean, the mainstream media means we're informing people who may not be total horse people, but they have a right to know what goes on, too. And when you break it down to its elements, a uh, rule was broken, a drug was used, and the investigation was covered up. And that's pretty simple. And I think people are interested and have the right to know that. Joe Drape writes about horse racing and other things for the New York Times. He also wrote the book American Pharaoh about another Triple Crown winning horse trained by Bob Baffert. Joe Drape, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, I wanted to let you know that we have a bonus segment for the Slate Plus members. And on said Slate Plus segment, we are going to talk with Ryan O'Callaghan. You're going to hear from Ryan in our segment coming up. We're going to talk to him about his memoir, 
about life as a closeted player in the NFL. Really good conversation. We had a lot more to talk about, so we extended it to Slate Plus. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangoutplus. Ryan O'Callaghan had a plan. He would play in the NFL until he couldn't any longer, and then he would kill himself. He built a cabin in the woods and stocked it with firearms. He wrote a goodbye letter for his parents. He planned out the day down to the leather couch he would lie on and the gun that he would use. Without football, O'Callaghan believed he couldn't live with the secret that he had carried since he was a teenager that he was gay. O'Callaghan played six years as an offensive lineman with the New England Patriots and the Kansas City Chiefs. He describes his ordeal in a new book, My Life on the Line, How the NFL Damn Near Killed Me and Ended Up Saving My Life. It's a memoir of the emotional havoc of being closeted in the NFL and of the brutal physical consequences of playing football. Ryan O'Callaghan joins us now. Hey, Ryan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. The story is harrowing, to say the least, and it's really painful to read and incredibly sad because you just want someone to come along and help you. But it's also entirely understandable because of the worlds that you were immersed in as you described them, this conservative part of Northern California where you grew up, a family of tough men and tough talk, and of football. Do you remember making a conscious decision to try to hide inside of football of all places? Yeah, absolutely. You know, growing up, I think everyone kind of goes through different stages where they realize or admit that they're gay to themselves. And then, you know, everyone has a different attraction to females. And I was never from day one that I knew I was different attracted at all to females. And like a lot of guys try to do, they, they try to date women as a cover. And I just, I didn't think I could do a good enough job fooling a female and using that as my cover. But, you know, I knew that I could do it with football. So that, that's the route that I chose. One of the saddest things for me in reading this, Ryan, is like you're clearly, you know, you get the sense as you're reading the book that you're a very smart and thoughtful and sensitive guy. And one of the things that you did as as a cover was that you were an asshole. Like you talk about how you were mean to your classmates that and then you saw younger kids once you became really good at, at sports, as tends to happen, the, you know, best jocks become the popular kids and younger people look up to them. And you saw people who were younger than you, like in high school, kind of take after you and be jerks too. Like that for me was incredibly sad to hear. Yeah. It, it, you know, a lot of people, I guess the words project their insecurities and, and their self-hatred on others. And and I did the same. You know, I, I, I was always afraid that I was about to be outed and you know, I, I made the conscious decision that, okay, I, you know, I have to be a stereotypical tough guy. You know, I can't, I can't be weak and emotional. So kind of had a lot of uh, victims, my bullying along the way, you know, from young high school all the way through college. And I've tried to do the best I can to actually apologize to people that I know that I have I affected. I realized that words matter because it was people's words that affected me growing up and, and drove me so deep in the closet. So I, I definitely feel bad for, for some of the things I did. And when you say the words that drove you deeper in the closet, you mean being around a sort of culture of homophobia and hearing homophobic language in in, in your family and, and in your community. Yeah, you know, as a child, you you look up to your parents and, and people you love. And if you hear these people using the word faggot or not having anything nice to say about 
gay people at all. You know, I, I had a lot of family in San Francisco. They're all from the Bay Area. And quite a few of my relatives were firefighters during the AIDS epidemic. And I just, I heard countless negative things about gay people. And, you know, as a child, you're, you know, you're different, you know, you're, you're gay and you hear the loved ones saying these things and you think they're talking about you. And that's exactly what happened to me. And, you know, that's why today I, I really try to reach parents and tell them to just watch what they say because you know, your, your children are listening. One of the things that really struck me was as you make your way from high school to college at, at Cal, where you were, you know, the offensive lineman of the year in the conference and then into the NFL, you're going through this kind of personal torment and don't really see or, or don't really believe that there are other you know, folks in the locker room who could really understand you. Then on the other side, you're also going through the kind of torment of playing football and the pain and the injuries and the painkillers. And that is actually something that everybody who plays the sport can relate to and is going through that same pain. Was that something that you were aware of, that you were having these kind of two separate battles, one that you really could share with anyone who played football and one that you couldn't? I never really separated the two. I was also never quick to talk about myself or my problems. You know, it's like you said, football players, athletes in general are no stranger to painkillers. I was on another level. You know, I, I was an addict. I was a jockey. But, you know, it all starts by one injury, getting prescribed one pill. But I didn't feel like I had anyone I could look up to at all or that I could relate to. You know, and I really didn't reevaluate the situation I was in until the end. And I think that part of it, the sort of hiding within the NFL you described is sort of easier than hiding in college or in high school where you had to sort of create this elaborate um, ruse about who you were. You could get away with not dating anyone in the NFL because your teammates were married or had fiancés or girlfriends or were, you know, you could say as you did that you had a girl back home and you could sort of just focus on the professional part of it, especially when you were in New England where it was so rigorous and everyone was sort of pulling on the same oars and going in the same direction and, and appreciated the, 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 the success. Um, at the same time, you also acknowledge that you know, football is pretty miserable, that the NFL is this miserable place. And what struck me is that the NFL kind of served this different central purpose for you. It was a way for you to hide your sexuality. But otherwise, you had a pretty normal, if that's the right word, NFL experience. You were, your body was ravaged by injury. Your career was cut short because of injury. You weren't treated well by medical personnel over the years. And we can talk a little bit about that later. But I do think it's interesting. I do think it's important to, you know, to understand just how brutal it is and to have a player tell us how brutal it is. So tell us exactly, you know, run through your, your injuries and surgeries for us to put that into context. Yeah. I, I think first off, people need to realize the NFL is a business before anything else. And like any business they're they're trying to make money and, Going into the NFL, you know, I got drafted having three previous shoulder surgeries along with some other injuries. And then I get to my first year in New England when I was starting, I injured my neck pretty badly, uh, ended up losing feeling on the field, losing feeling to my extremities on the field. And something like six weeks later, I guess it was, I ended up coming back and playing. You know, well, one example I talk about in the book of how the NFL is a business. Well, they cut my jersey off me when I got injured that time. 
And when I ended up coming back a month and a half later, I had that same jersey and it was sewn up. So that you know, that's what two hundred bucks, but it all adds up to them. So after that, my final the year before my last in New England, I injured my left shoulder again um, during practice, defensive line drill, and I knew it was hurt. I had had multiple surgeries on it before, and uh, initially the doctor tried to tell me nothing was wrong with it. You know, I knew that was a lie. Um, so I got an MRI, and, and once again, he told me nothing new was wrong with it. Well, that little word there, new, was, was kind of the catch there where he wasn't technically lying. Uh, so we have a strong union in the NFL, and I, I spoke with our union rep, Mike Vrabel, at the time, who is an awesome human being. And Mike reminded me of my, my rights, and I, I took advantage of those and ended up getting the treatment I needed and then the team admitting something was wrong and then I was able to have surgery with my doctor back in California. And so I had that injury. And then, um, so I spent three years in new England and then I went over to Kansas city where I, uh, ended up getting, I started again and then I tore my left groin um, after that left groin injury. I was out for weeks, and that's when the painkiller problem really kicked into overdrive. Because uh, at that point, I had had a, a, a positive test for marijuana, so I wasn't allowed to smoke weed, but I could take all the painkillers I wanted. Um, so I was abusing painkillers after that a groin injury, and then I tore my sh left shoulder again. And that was really when things started to spiral out of control. So, you know, after six years in the NFL, which, you know, I played double the average, which is great. Even though I don't love football and football is just a cover for me, I'm, I'm still proud of that fact that I played six years and, you know, doubled the average. But, you know, I, I, I did put my body through hell. It was the emotional pain that really wore on me, though, that, than anything. It was a trainer for the Chiefs, David Price, that recognized I was... I was spiraling out of control. You know, I knew my career was over and my whole plan all along was, was to end my life after football because I didn't think I could continue living, especially living as an openly gay man and being able to hide, basically. Um, so he noticed I was really abusing pills. and He didn't know why, but he recommended I go speak to someone. And that, that's where the subtitle of my book comes from, how the NFL damn near killed me, but ended up saving my life because you know, it was all the pills and everything that happened with the NFL, but at the same time, it was the professionals that are employed by these teams that recognize the issue that sent me to get the help that, that I needed. Yeah, that contradiction that the league basically banning pot helped turn you into a drug addict and the ready availability of Vicodin, Oxy, Dilaudid, and other drugs, you know, you needed them to kill two kinds of pain. You needed them to kill your physical pain but also the emotional pain that you had been carrying with you for so long, right? Yeah, it, it's, I mean, anyone who's taken a painkiller knows that they give you a little euphoric feeling. And, you know, after a few days of taking one pill, it no, long, it no longer has that same effect. So you, you have to take more and more if you want the same pain relief. And But for me, it was that euphoric feeling that painkillers, opioids give you that I craved. You know, it, it makes you not feel like yourself. And at that point in my life, I would do anything not to feel like myself. And, you know, that, that's what quickly turned me into an addict. So as you said, the trainer kind of recognized that you were 
spiraling, didn't know why. You end up speaking to a psychologist and it's in that conversation. Was that the first person in the whole world that you had ever told that you were gay? Yeah. So he set me up with Dr. Wilson and I sat with her for months. I was really, you know, obviously dodging questions. And, you know, I only agreed to, to see her because I thought telling David no would just raise more questions. And I hated questions. So I went and chatted with her. But after months of, you know, her breaking me down and, and you know, I think I finally believed that she could never tell anyone. So that was the first time I ever said the words, you know, I'm gay. And the first thing she did was stand up, give me a hug and tell me that I wasn't the first football player to actually come out to her, you know, and immediately telling her, even though I know she can't tell anyone, then finding out, you know, really, you're not alone, which, you know, I, I suspected there were other guys, but just that close of a relationship. And, you know, that's a huge weight off the shoulders. But that was just the start, though. You know, I was I was concerned about family and loved ones. So it's not just like a very kind of clean and neat path for you. After that, it's not like you say, I'm gay in this room, and then it's all kind of sunshine and rainbows, and then here we are, um, you know, years later. What was the pathway like for you to kind of get to acceptance and to a place where you felt happy and healthy? Yeah, that, that was a long road. So I, I came out to Dr. Wilson, and then you know, immediately in the next day or two, I I came out to my best friend who was living with me at the time. Brian was a high school buddy, and totally straight guy. And he just, he lived with me for while I was in the NFL and helped me out. So I came out to him. Um, at the time I came out to him, he said, you know, love you, buddy. It's all good. And that kind of started the process to come out to other people. So I made that plan to head out to California to tell family the people I was most worried about. So I headed back to California and, uh, Long story short, told my family, and um, all of them were were okay with it. Um, you know, it, it took my dad a little bit of time to come around to the idea. And I think at, at the time when I first came out, I might have been a little unreasonable, expecting him to just totally be fine and accepting about it, you know, from the very beginning. Um, now, he was never hateful or anything. He just was quiet and kind of acted like I didn't tell him for the first year or so. And, but he also spent 29, 30 years picturing me as a different person. So, you know, if it takes him a year, that's, that's fine. But so I, I came out to them and then I, I started to come out to other friends and things have been getting better and better. And, you know, I, I think it, you know, that whole first year, year and a half after I came out, I didn't even try to date guys. You, know, you don't go from hating your life to perfectly fine overnight. So I focused on me and today, you know, things are great. You're actually very complimentary about the culture of the NFL, by and large, in relation to sexuality. You say you never heard the word fag in an NFL locker room. The only homophobic comments that you actually relate in the book come from your former coach in Kansas City, Todd Haley. And yeah. you kind of discover that your fears were self-inflicted about the league and, and the responses. After you came out, your ex-teammates front office executives, especially Scott Pioli, who was the, the general manager in Kansas City, who seems like he was an amazing human being and, and one of your great supporters, Patriots owner Robert Kraft, even, even Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, they're all supportive. Um, Michael Sam didn't stick in the league. 
when he came out before the draft. Um, he was selected, but he did not make a team. Are you optimistic that an open, openly gay player can survive in the NFL now? Yeah, Michael Sam didn't make a team. It had nothing to do with him being gay. You know, it's just talent. I've said this over and over recently with Ryan Russell coming out. You know, a guy has the same, I'm a firm believer, the guy has the same opportunities as he does the day before he comes out as the day after. I tell these guys that their play on the field is going to have to speak louder than the media, but if they really want to do it, they can do it. And don't use you know, coming out as an excuse for not making a team. You know, the NFL has taken steps to publicly show their support for the community, which which is big for them. You know, they have such a huge impact on society as a whole, and just the culture of America around the NFL is, you know, it's a ridiculous impact. So the NFL, to, to do things like sponsoring New York Pride Parade and then actually drawing attention to it this year, that's huge. Now, I understand they have to be careful not to alienate fans, but it's good to see that the steps they are taking you know, to help that next player who, who is closeted and thinking about coming out. We should mention Sid Ziegler, who co-wrote the book with you, the proprietor of Outsports. And, um, you know, Outsports has done a really great job as far as visibility is concerned. That's um, where you publicly made your announcement in a, in a story on Outsports a couple years ago. And over the years, they've published so many stories of whether it's professional or college or high school athletes coming out and really showing everyone how normal it is um, to be a, a gay athlete and and playing sports. And yet, you know, we talked about Michael Sam. It just seems like there's been a little bit of backsliding in terms of visibility in the pro sports. We had Jason Collins as an active gay player in the NBA, and now he's retired. And, um, you know, there's nobody in the NFL who's currently playing and, and is out um, NBA, Major League Baseball. Um, wondering if you think that there is something going on here that would be an explanation for, for the fact that there's nobody active when there was before, or if you just think it's kind of a blip and, and that will change soon? Yeah, I, I think it's just a blip. I mean, I, I can assure you there's plenty of closeted athletes specifically in the NFL. So it's just going to take something to get, to get someone to come forward and feel confident enough and, and come out in the NFL. You have such a short amount of time to make as much money as possible. And, and, you know, when you're, when you're closeted, I think you have a hard time not seeing coming out as potentially jeopardizing your career, even though I, I don't think that's the case. I'd actually maybe argue against that. If you look at guys like Kenworthy, who was the, most sponsored Olympian, you know, it was because he was gay. So, you know, if anything, it, it might help. But, you know, there, there's things the NFL still can do with maybe give guys confidence that they won't be, won't be jeopardizing their career. You know, maybe if they do guaranteed contracts or something like that. But it's only a matter of time. Ryan O'Callaghan is a former NFL player, and he's the author with Sid Ziegler of My Life on the Line, How the NFL Damn Near Killed Me and Ended Up Saving My Life. Ryan, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. And now it is time for After Ball. So I found a story about uh, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, Stefan, Republican, very concerned with civility, not particularly concerned with uh, Donald Trump uh, and his civility, but very concerned with civility. 
more broadly. Um, there's a story in the Omaha World Herald about a confrontation that Ben Sass had at a Nebraska football game. And at Nebraska football games, apparently for, for decades, Ben Sass has worked as a vendor selling something called Runzas. Are you familiar with a Runza? No. A Runza is a yeast. This is per Wikipedia. It's a yeast dough bread pocket filled with a, uh, a filling consisting of beef, cabbage, or sauerkraut, onions, and seasonings. Mm. Runzas can be baked into various shapes, such as a half moon, a rectangle, a round, a square, or a triangle. So these are sold in Nebraska football games. So this games. is like a Nebraska empanada? Yes, yeah, a Nebraska empanada. They're sold in Nebraska football games. Ben Sass sells them at Memorial Stadium. Currently? While yes. serving as a senator? Yes. Um, somebody came up to him and is like, you're horrible, as people sometimes do. He was like, I will no longer be selling Runzas because someone came up to me and said they did not appreciate how I dealt with the Brett Kavanaugh uh, nomination. So thank you for being <laughs> uncivil and ruining Ben Sass's time. He will no longer be selling Runzas. Stefan, what is your Runza? <laughs> I have a lot of questions before we get to my Runza. Was he getting paid to sell Runzas? Was he getting no, minimum No, it's for wage? charity, obviously. How dare you insinuate such a thing? So he was donating his pay to charity? or It was Because that's probably charity. not much. It's probably like seven twenty-five an hour. So He was selling them, and then you would make money from selling them, and then they would go to— Oh, the proceeds from yes, the sale exactly. of the exactly. Runzas. Okay. Exactly. All right. What's your Runza, Stefan? Last week, Steve Palazzolo of the football website PFF tweeted a clip from Thursday night's Carolina-Tampa Bay NFL game. In it, one ref marks the ball what appears to be just short of the yellow first down line on the screen, tosses it to a second ref who places it a full ball length ahead of the original spot. This is science, Palazzolo wrote. It's a pretty hilarious sequence. Joe Poznanski pointed out how the first ref moves the ball up a couple of inches for no apparent reason. Then the second official does his magic. What a performance. I chimed in that the first official walks away before the second one can see where he had marked the ball. Other comments included... Absolute joke, so stupid, clown show, no excuse for this, and the science of being awful at your job. Well, we were all wrong. As a couple of commenters noted, once a first down is indicated, it's accepted practice for officials to spot the ball at the top of the nearest yard marker, which makes it easier to determine whether a team subsequently makes a first down. In this case, once the ref signaled Carolina first down, the ultimate spot was immaterial. But it's still kind of remarkable that the NFL hasn't invested in technology better than the naked eye and two poles connected by 10 yards of chain to locate where a ball is marked and whether a team has achieved a first down. Wait, wait a second. Yeah. I, f I feel like this is earth shattering news. I mean, the, the earth isn't that fragile that it would, that it would shatter. But so, like, even if you get a first down at like the one and three quarter yard line, they'll move it up to the one. According to some things I read, yeah, if it's between the hashes, they will often move it up to the next hash, which I can't imagine if it's right in between the two hashes, they would go all the way up like that. But like this one was just short of the hash and they move the nose of the ball up to the end of the hash. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're going to get to this, but in a league so regimented, the idea, the notion that this would be permissible, it is. An outrage. No, I'm not going to get to that, actually. So let me continue. So 
kind of crazy that we don't have a better system for marking the ball and for first down. And the reason that we don't, it's mainly because while they may not be precise, as New York Giants owner John Marrett told the New York Times in 2008, there's a certain amount of drama that is involved with the chains. In a comprehensive story in The Ringer in 2017, Roger Sherman noted that the chains date to 1907 before a touchdown was worth six points and a field goal was worth three. Since then, there have been many attempts to build a better mousetrap, a better first down marker, actually, a wheeled apparatus in 1929, a surveyor thingy in the 1950s. There was a laser beam in the 1970s. My personal favorite, however, is the dicker rod. The Dicker Rod, that's one word, D-I-C-K-E-R-O-D, though it was often written as two words, Dicker Rod or Dicker Hyphen Rod. The Dicker Rod was invented in 1970 by a retired aerospace and automotive engineer in California named George Dicker. The unfortunately eponymous device was based on the idea that the football is never more than two and a half yards from a five-yard line. Attached to one end of the dicker rod was a rectangular sort of croquet wicket thing with rubber feet that was placed on the five-yard line beyond the spot of the ball. A sliding pointer on the rod then was locked into place where the ball was marked. You move the croquet wicket end of the dicker rod 10 yards downfield, and voila, precision. Dicker believed that the Dicker rod not only was more accurate than chains, it was safer too. Players running out of bounds could trip over the chains. The Dicker rod was held upright between measurements. The Dicker rod debuted in a few high school and college games near Los Angeles in 1970. Business booming for Dicker rod inventor, the LA Times reported in 1972. That year, the device was used in the college coaches All-American game. The big break, though, came in 1974 when the Dicker rod was adopted by the upstart World Football League. I was 11 then. I don't remember the Dicker rod, but I did love the team names and the helmet logos. You had the Hawaiians. The WFL had a team in Honolulu, the Detroit Wheels, the Shreveport Steamer, and the Memphis Southmen. Loved the Memphis Southmen. WFL games aired on an independent sports programming syndicate called TVS Television Network. The inaugural broadcast got off to an inauspicious start when play-by-play announcer Merle Harmon called the New York Stars team the New York Jets. Harmon's color partner was a former NFL running back and good old boy named Alex Hawkins. And the WFL rotated other ex-players and celebrities into the booth, including retired NFL stars Alex Karras and Gail Sayers and the actors Burt Reynolds and McLean Stevenson of MASH, Jane Chastain, a Miami sportscaster who later that year would be the first woman on an NFL broadcast, also showed up in a WFL booth. For the opener, though, the third wheel was my idol, George Plimpton. A recording of the first half of the game survives. Let's listen. Here in Jacksonville, Florida tonight, it's a hot, steamy night. Four minutes and nine seconds to go in the first half, and the New York Sharks lead... Or rather, the Jacksonville Sharks lead the New York Stars by a score of seven to nothing. No, you were talking about that international orange they have down there on that action line. It's also the uh, the color of the stripe around the nose and tail of the, of the football. In fact, they've got a yellow football there, so, uh, which comes off on the quarterback's hands. I'm told. Alamino Golden, that that yellow color is called, and it's got that international orange. To, supposed to be much easier to see and to catch than the regular night ball. I'm telling you, George did his homework on the colors and the <laughs> balls and the yard marker. Well, I still haven't explained that yard marker, right? We've got two more quarters to go. You get it. 
I have no idea what the action line was. Uh, but according to news reports, Plimpton in the second half, which we don't have a recording of, did try to explain the dickerad, but only mumbled a lot and said little, one sports columnist wrote. Another columnist noting Plimpton's patrician accent quoted him calling the dickerad an invention which does away with the whole idea of change. Sadly for the Dickerod, the WFL dropped the device for the 1975 season. The Dickerod was a good concept, league president Chris Hemeter said, but there's nothing like that chain being stretched to measure a first down. That's what people want to see. What people didn't want to see was the WFL. The league folded midway through that 1975 season. George Dicker told the Seattle Times two years later that he didn't know what happened to the WFL's Dicker rods. He did say that he was paid all $5,000 that he was owed. I still think it's an excellent piece of equipment, Dicker said. Of course, it takes a little intelligence to use it. You'd be surprised how stupid some of those officials were. George Dicker, everybody. Josh, what's your runza? Credit to our guest, Matt Brown, for this idea as he tweeted last week about the phenomenon I'm about to describe. You might have gotten a whiff of it yourself. If you've heard a male basketball coach at an introductory press conference, uh, Travis Steele, when he was announced as the new coach at Xavier in 2018, he thanked his wife and called her, quote, the best recruit I've ever signed. Heath Schroyer of McNeese State said that his wife, Kim, once you meet her, you'll realize she's the best recruit I've ever signed. Will Wade of LSU thanked his wife, saying, she's my best recruit. It also works at a retirement ceremony, as when UConn's Jim Calhoun said his wife, Pat, was his best recruit ever. Or what about a Hall of Fame induction? Here's Tom Izzo in 2016. Recruiting my wife was like basketball recruiting. I got a lot of no thank yous at first. I kept pursuing and finally had my first date the first day we won that first Big Ten championship as an assistant. It's not just basketball coaches at Ogeron in 2014. He refers to Kelly as his best recruit. Minnesota's Jerry Kill on signing day 2014. My best recruit's drinking coffee in the back here. Rebecca, she's going to play slot receiver for us. Kind of a good sense of humor. When he was a finalist for the Broyles Award as college football's best assistant in 2018, here's Jay Bateman of Army. I want to thank my wife, Heather. Let me guess. Best recruit ever. Andy Hutchins in SB Nation in 2012 wrote a piece pegged to uh, Colorado football coach Mike McIntyre at his introductory press conference saying uh, he actually asked his wife, Trisha to stand up and said, looking at her, you can definitely tell I can recruit. Get it? Because she's hot. Andy Hutchins described this as hot wife theory. And his definition of hot wife theory is that uh, as a coach, if you have, quote, the ability to convince women to enter into consensual sexual life partnerships, uh, then that is cited as evidence that you can convince 17-year-olds to choose to play football for you. Uh, James Franklin is another one who did this. And then he also mentioned the all-time champion and proponent of hot wife theory is Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin had talked about how his wife, Layla, was evidence that he was a great recruiter because she was blonde, et cetera. And then he took it one step further. In 2018, he did an interview with CBS Sports, and he said of his offensive coordinator at Florida Atlantic, Charlie Weiss Jr., quote, he's got a beautiful wife. How'd Charlie get her? 
I look at assistant coaches' wives. It tells me if they are good recruiters or not. Um, this piece, uh, SB Nation aggregated that CBS Sports interview, and they noted that at the time that he made this comment, Lane Kiffin had gotten divorced. Um, there are a couple of different tropes so, here. So his wife wanted a transfer? <laughs> yeah, he was able to come up with a list of different people that she could not marry. If she chose to marry them, she would have to sit out a year. Um, so there are a couple of different tropes here. There is the um, my wife is super hot trope. So you can obviously tell that I can recruit, quote unquote, five stars. There is the um, not the not necessarily that my wife is super hot, but the my wife needed to be convinced to even go out on a date with me trope. And so I'm thus good at convincing recruits. There was uh, A.W. Hamilton Eastern Kentucky basketball coach. As soon as she walked in the restaurant, I knew I was going to marry her. I had to convince her that a long-distance relationship was going to work. And that was tough. That's why I always say she's my best recruit. The thing that's most obvious here to me, if you just put those different uh, tropes aside, it's just the kind of lack of imagination and life experience. It's like, I got married, and also the only other thing that I do is recruit. Um, so Brett Bielema, who, when he was a coach at Arkansas in 2016, describes recruiting in Florida. That's where I cut my teeth as a recruiter. I've signed over 80 players from the Miami and Fort Lauderdale area. I've signed 20 from the west side of the state as well. And my wife is from Tampa, the best recruit I've ever had. Um, in that piece for SB Nation in 2012, Andy Hutchins noted correctly that hot wife theory is objectifying patriarchal and heteronormative. We're not going to be able to do anything about that today on this podcast, except maybe point it out. I'm sure all of the basketball and football coaches that are listening right now are going to immediately change their behavior. But the one thing I can do is point out at least one example of script flipping that I was able to find. Uh, PJ Fleck, currently the football coach at Minnesota. You may know him as the row the boat guy, the catchphrase. Um, His wife, Heather Fleck, did an interview with the Minnesota fan site Gopher Hole, in which she was asked, tell me about you two. How did you meet? She was asked by the Minnesota fan site Gopher Hole. I repeat, Gopher Hole. Heather Fleck says, we met in Kalamazoo through a friend that kind of set us up. It was one of those deals where we went to dinner and it was love at first sight. I recruited him a bit. He is my best recruit. Thank you. Heather it's kind Fleck. of preemptive, I think, on Heather Fleck's part. That's the you can't use it now. It's like a college football meet cute rom com on the poster. They were each other's best recruits, or we recruited each other. A love story. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more hang up and listen. If you heard our segment earlier with Ryan O'Callaghan. You might want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment, we talked a bit more with Ryan about his life in the NFL. Most people have no idea what happens after you retire. You know, if you play three years in the NFL, you basically get nothing. So you have to play four years, five games, something like that, just to qualify for retirement. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. Just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Patsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.